Good morning once again. Welcome for the scripture reading this morning. I want to direct your attention to in, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. If you turn with me in your Bibles, uh, scripture reading is verses 8 through 19. It's page 976 in the Pew Bibles. And if you would stand with me, please, in honor of God's word as I read this passage. The Apostle Paul writes under inspiration, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Please be seated as we Go to the throne of grace in prayer. Father, we thank you. This Memorial Day weekend that we can gather as your people, your bride, your church, because of the Lord Jesus Christ our wonderful, precious Savior. We thank you, Lord, that while we were once strangers and aliens, and Lord, we were, we were your enemies, we were dead in our sins, you made us alive in Christ. We thank you for these wonderful words, but now, in Christ, Lord, you have brought peace. We thank you, Lord, that through the cross, through the shed blood of our Savior, Lord, that we have forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we look forward to eternity, worshiping you. Thank you, Lord, that, Lord, as a body, you have led us to bless and to support missionaries throughout the world, those that take your word, the gospel, to the ends of the earth. Lord, we lift up to you this morning uh, the Caskies, and Lord, and we pray for the ministry of Colleen and InterVarsity Fellowship. Lord, we thank you for 
that ministry and we pray for those ongoing Bible studies, Lord. Pray for those that lead those Bible studies. We pray, Lord, that many in University of Delaware and it, from, from the tip of Maine, Lord, to the, the, the universities throughout this country, Lord, that young people would come to faith in Christ or would have peace with God through the shed blood of Christ. Lord, please direct, give InterVarsity a vision to see these athletic communities renewed for Christian, Lord, athletes to grow in their faith. Or bless Colleen and her position there. Thank you for her giftedness. Thank you for her and Greg, Lord, and their service for you. Lord, please bless their marriage. Lord, please strengthen them and their love for you and their love for each other. And Lord, we're mindful this morning that as we enjoy the freedoms in this land, Lord, that our brothers and sisters throughout the globe this morning, many, many, Lord, are suffering intensely for their faith. Some paying the ultimate price, Lord, of their lives. Strengthen them, Lord. Protect them. May the, the in and through, Lord, even through the, the persecution of your people, may the gospel run to the ends of the earth so that, Lord, that in that wonderful scene in Revelation 5 where there are people from every tribe and tongue and language, Lord, because of the gospel and your great love. Lord, as pastor would come to preach this morning, I pray that you would bless in this series on loving our neighbors. I pray, Lord, that that by your grace and in your strength, with the empowering of your spirit, Lord, that we might love you first and foremost, and then love our neighbors, Lord, as ourselves. Lord, be gospel witnesses to our neighbors. Lord, because you first loved us we might love you and love our neighbors. So bless your word as it's preached this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in our midst. Lord, help us not to just hear information this morning, but Lord, would you transform us to be more like our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Morning, Bethel family. Whoa, louder than usual. All right, so we are beginning a new series here this morning. Um, love your literal neighbor. Um, we could have called it gospel hospitality or practicing Christian hospitality or the neighboring series, but I think you get the idea. Um, we're going to be focusing for four weeks, including this one, so three more after this, on the theology and practice of Christian, biblical, gospel-driven hospitality. So in the life of our church, we had a missions conference um, a little while back, a month or so ago, um, and this is going to be, I think, a really good follow-up on some of the things that um, the Lord taught us that weekend things about how to listen well for the sake of loving others, um, really practical ways to share our faith from Bill Campbell's um, seminar. Uh, if, we, if you heard anything about Leonardo's church in Italy and how they're so intentional in their neighborhoods, um, I think we'll be able to follow in that example, better equipped to do so. I think also the timing of the series is important as we head into the summer. 
Um, because summer presents special opportunities to get to know our neighbors and love our neighbors and be present in our neighborhoods. So I think you'll see why um, by the end of this morning um, how we can take advantage of the opportunities that the summer presents. So again, the timing is important here. So we're going to start with a little exercise, okay? So grab your bulletin because participating in this exercise is found right here. Okay, so on one side is the sermon outline, which is way more detailed than usual. Um, so don't worry, it's not going to feel that complicated. Um, hopefully that'll just simplify things. But this is what you want to turn to, okay? So pull this out. If you don't have a writing utensil, there should be one in the pew in front of you. There's pencils. So I think even the kids could do this with their literal neighbors. But if there's not a lot of kids in your neighborhood, you could do it with school school friends um, or kids on your swim team or baseball team or whatever. So this little exercise comes from a book called The Art of Neighboring. Um, and I'll be referring to that a few times. So here's what you're going to do. You are here. It's kind of simple. This isn't rocket science. That's you. So you can write your address right there if you know your address. I hope you know your address. Everybody awake? So go ahead and put your address there. And there's eight, count them, boxes around your address. So think of your eight closest neighbors. The eight houses or apartment units or whatever closest to you. And go ahead and write the names of your eight closest neighbors. Ready, go. This is audience participation, so <laughs> I'll have lots of opportunity to participate this morning. So I'll shut up so you can focus. Is this a hard exercise? Okay. So the full exercise has actually three points for each of these blocks. Okay, we won't take the time to do that. But let me tell it to you so that you can fill it out this afternoon. So names, eight closest neighbors. The second thing is just a basic, some kind of basic fact about your neighbor, like what they do for a living. Or, you know, Marisa is from Cuba. The third thing would be something deeper that you know about that neighbor because you've had a significant conversation. So you know some of their fears or their struggles or their dreams or their desires or something significant that would only come as a result of a deeper conversation. So the, the guys that wrote this book, The Art of Neighboring, have done this numerous times in numerous churches, and here's their findings. Ready? About 10%, this is in the church, about 10% of people can fill out the names of all eight of their neighbors. So maybe that makes you feel a little bit better um, if you're in the 90%. About 3% can fill out line B for every home. And less than 1%, in fact, I heard one of the guys say he's never had anybody fill out all three slots for all eight in one of their seminars. So they actually affectionately call this the chart of shame. Um, so, but it's, it's meant to be more than that. So don't, don't feel like we're going to leave you, you know, just with your tail between your legs walking out this morning. Okay? So how'd you do? Just take a minute and let that hit you. Jesus said, in response to the guy who asked him, you know, most important commandment, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So, of course, our neighbor is anybody we run into. But don't you think this should at least include our literal neighbors right around us? I mean, you're not in your neighborhood by accident, right? So let that hit you. This is, this is so important. 
the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor, and 10%, 3%, 1%, less than 1%. Okay, so here's what got these guys going in writing this book. There were some pastors that got together in Colorado back in 2009. They invited the, the mayor of the town, and they were basically asking him, you know, what are some of the greatest needs in our community, and how could we as the faith community help reach uh, or, you know, meet some of those needs? And here's what the mayor said to the pastors. The majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. So then one of the authors writes, after the mayor left, our group of pastors was left to reflect. I just blurted out, am I the only one here is a little bit embarrassed? I mean, here we were asking the mayor how we can best serve the city, and he basically tells us that it would be great if we could just get our people to obey the second half of the great commandment. In a word, the mayor invited a room full of pastors to get their people to actually obey Jesus. So then at the next meeting of these local pastors, they invited the assistant city manager. And so they asked her to talk about neighboring and why it matters. And she said, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. Ouch. So is that the case here in Wilmington? A few stats from a recent city observatory report. Only about 20% of Americans spent time regularly with the people living next to them. A third said they've never interacted with their neighbors. A 2010 survey by Pew Research Center, nearly a third of Americans said they know none of their neighbors by name. We could obviously put all kinds of other factoids and statistics alongside this, like we spend 19 hours a week watching TV on average, up from 10 hours in, 19, in the 60s, and who knows how many additional hours just, you know, looking at screens, scrolling, clicking. But what else is rampant in our, and pervasive in our world, in our communities? Loneliness, right? Isn't that rampant? Neighboring's a lost art. Technology is driving us toward isolation, isolated entertainment, distraction. Our lives outside of work are lived more online sometimes than on in the front yard. So perhaps, perhaps this is actually an opportunity rather than an obstacle. Anybody? So don't you want to be included? Don't you want to be welcomed in, welcomed home? Don't you want to be known? Don't you long for a sense of rootedness and community? Do you think your neighbors might as well? And listen, the ultimate inclusion, the ultimate welcome, the ultimate belonging, the ultimate home, the ultimate knowing and being known, the ultimate community is something that only the church of Jesus can offer to the world around us, to our literal neighbors around us. Because we alone know, have experienced the hospitality of God. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the hospitality of God. In a sense, we're going to kind of look at what the Bible says about the hospitality of God and how that works out through our lives as his people. So first point, and then I'm telling you, this is not how detailed the typical outlines are here, okay? But it'll help you follow along. This is going to be audience participation. You're going to want to look up some of these passages, so get your fingers ready. Um, in this warm auditorium, it'll help keep you stay awake. Help you stay awake. Um, so anyway, first point, our hospitable God. How does that strike you, that idea? God is hospitable. Does that resonate with you? that sound weird in your ears? I mean, how is it that God is hospitable? If you were to try to write down some things, do th some things come immediately to mind? Just think about the beginning. He created neighbors to love. He created a good, good, very good neighborhood, as it were, environment 
to welcome them into that they might flourish, Adam and Eve, right? God is the ultimate welcomer. He welcomes us in to relationship with him. He wants to serve us and provide for us and bless us and protect us. He's the ultimate host. I mean, what an environment he laid out for Adam and Eve. All for the sake of relationship with him and with each other. So here's the deal. Our first parents moved in, (laughs) and what happened? The neighborhood went to pot. So because of sin, we're all a part of what's made this world such a mess, okay? We're like cosmic vandals in God's neighborhood. We're like cosmic peace breakers and troublemakers. We're like Jean Valjean and Les Mis. Anybody know Les Mis? Okay. So he is this criminal, and he gets out of prison, and this priest takes him in and, you know, welcomes him and is so hospitable, he and his wife, and provides this meal. And then what does Jean Valjean do? Steals his silver. That's what we've done. All these good gifts, God, God, gave them all to us. He welcomes us in, and then we just take it for ourselves, for our own selfish purposes. So try to picture the worst urban blight that you've ever seen. And you know what? That's just a pointer. It's a parable of what we've all done, what we've all contributed to God's dwelling place. He intended this to be a place where he would dwell with his people in peace and harmony and love, and we just wrecked it. But thankfully, God is not a one-strike-and-you're-out host, right? He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So let's just do a quick run-through of a handful of texts to see God's hospitality, past, present, future. So here we go. Ready? Have your Bibles ready, your fingers ready. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. You could just listen, but if you want to follow along, that might be helpful to see these passages with your own eyes. So Leviticus 19.33, here's some of God's hospitality in the past, how he speaks to his people after he brought them out of Egypt, and when he's establishing them in the promised land, he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, like your own people. And you shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So I'm the Lord your God is shorthand for how did I neighbor you? I redeemed you. I brought you out of slavery, and I welcomed you home. I loved you. So love that stranger like you wanted to be loved when you were enslaved in Egypt. We're all, most of us probably familiar with Psalm 23, right? God, the shepherd, our shepherd, is described as a host in that passage. Remember verse 5? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, which is a normal um, loving host sort of thing to do back in the ancient Near East, though we don't do that today. Although I've got olive oil, so if you want some, I'll pour it on your head when you come over. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Speaks of the Gracious, overflowing, abundant, loving, caring, protecting hospitality of God. Or how about the future? Isaiah 25. You might want to flip there. I love this passage. So sweet. Heaven is not going to be, you know, floating around with wings, singing words at a screen, a temporary screen. Um, Talk more about that later. So Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, speaking of the future, Jesus returns, makes all things new. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, he will make for all his people a feast, 
I am anxious to eat some of God's cooking. Anybody else? All right. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's the kind of host he is. That is the feast that's coming future hospitality of God. So we turn to the New Testament. Speaking of future hospitality, in Luke 12, Jesus tells his disciples to be like servants dressed and ready for service to their master so that they're ready when he returns. And then in Luke 12, 37, he says this amazing thing. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake, ready, alert, when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That never happened in the first century. Never did the master serve the servants. But this God is so gracious and humble and generous and kind and servant-hearted. God is going to serve us when he returns. Again, at the table, this feast that's spoken of in Isaiah 25. So no wonder then when the Son of God comes to earth, again, we're thinking of the hospitality of God, right? What is going on with the incarnation? What's going on with Jesus, God with us, showing up in the flesh? What's going on? God moved into our neighborhood. He became our literal neighbor. He came seeking relationships, seeking those who were alienated from him because of sin and alone and isolated as a result. He came to seek and save the lost, to welcome them in, to welcome them home, to deal with what separated us from him, our sin. So you remember Jesus, before his death, he ate that meal with the disciples and he did the shocking thing that nobody would have expected. Again, this, this is the king of kings, and he is so humble. So he's the Lord, and he's the teacher. He's the host of the meal, the most important person at the meal, and he humbles himself, and he washes the disciples' feet. He did the, the work of the lowliest slave. This is the hospitality of God. So John 13, verse 12, he says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So, again, this is the hospitality of God. Do you picture God this way as the great welcomer, the great host, the great relational, like, arms open, loving God? And here he is humbly holding the basin and the towel to serve his guests. Did you hear the language in the passage that Al read for us? Turn back to Ephesians 2. Just two more texts under this first point. Ephesians 2.12. Just look at this language and savor it. Remember that you were at that time, before you became a Christian, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. You weren't a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what did our hospitable God do about that? Now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then look down in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access. He's welcomed us in. We're one family. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've got a family. You've got a home. You've got welcome and belonging so if you are in Christ, you belong, you have a home. If 
you don't know Christ, if he's not your Savior, you can come to him and join the family. He's extending that invitation to you this morning. That's what he came and died for, to deal with our sins so that what was separating us from God could be taken away, atoned for, so that we could be reconciled to God, have peace with him now and forever, and peace with his family, brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have received the ultimate welcome. So Paul writes in Romans 15, 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the hospitality that we exercise is the reflex response to God's gracious hospitality toward us. Okay? Did you hear that? The hospitality we exercise is the reflex response to God's gracious hospitality toward us. So God's hospitality is intended to lead to ours. It's, tended to, it's intended to empower ours, which leads to point number two. The gospel comes with an invitation. Okay, so Christian hospitality is a reflection of this gracious welcome of God. So let's do another quick survey here again to see this dynamic present in the Bible, um, in the Scripture. Think about Leviticus 19 again. You don't have to turn back there if you don't want to, but you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself because you were strangers. So you know the welcome. Now you treat the stranger with that same welcome. You see? It's a reflex. It's a response. Love your neighbor as yourself. You were in need of rescue and welcome. You were displaced and without a true home. Love as I loved you. Neighbor as I've neighbored you. Welcome as I've welcomed you. Which brings us back to Romans 15, right? 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So do you see it? Do you see how hospitality is the reflex of the gospel? The hospitality of God? Action, reaction. <laughs> Anybody see that? Just making sure. Okay. So just as the gospel comes with a gracious invitation, so should your hospitality, my hospitality. So Rosaria Butterfield, I'll, I'll point out this book in just a minute. She writes this. She says, The gospel creates community that welcomes others in. The gospel says to fellow image bearers, you are welcome here. Come as you are. Take my hand. I'm not leading. I'm following. Jesus is leading. Here's what he's done for me. I'm just leading you in the same direction. So you know the gospel comes with an invitation. It's all over the Bible, whether it's Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price, spiritual food. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So the gospel, the grace of God is, is spoken of here, metaphorically, as a rich meal. Feed on this grace. We're all hungry and we try to satisfy our souls with different things and it just leaves us empty and hungry still when we try to find it apart from God. Or in the New Testament, the gospel comes with an invitation. Come to me, Jesus said. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. All that anxiety and guilt and burden, come to me. I, I bore that on the cross for you so that that weight could fall off and be forgiven and cast away from you. And you can know rest and peace of soul because you're forgiven and cleansed. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Or Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. It's an invitation. So the invitation that we extend should be a reflection of God's invitation to us. How has God welcomed us in? He's done it intentionally, proactively, graciously, lovingly, warmly, generously, kindly, even persistently, you have any of those neighbors that like don't, like you come out and try to wave and they just scurry into their house? I think this happens a lot around here. I don't know. 
what it is. But anyway, persistently, like God's welcome to us. And again, it's a reflex. It's a reflection of the invitation of our God and Savior. So one, one other way that the gospel comes with an invitation, and I didn't see this until reading this book by Rosaria Butterfield, um, almost done with it. It's a great title. The gospel comes with a house key. Do you think that's a great title? I think it's a great title. Anybody? Okay. Are you just, it's hot in here? Okay. Um, so I was convicted by this. Turn to Mark 10. It's one of the ways she shows that the gospel comes with an invitation. This will lead us into point three. <clears throat> Mark 10, 28. So Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. So, you know, what, what do we get for this? Is it really worth it? Are you going to make it worth, it worth it for us? And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Rosaria Butterfield says it a lot better than me. I'll let her say it. She says this, Please note what Jesus says about how to love anyone who responds to the gospel in faith and obedience and who must lose everything in order to gain the kingdom's promises. Jesus says that he expects we will lose partners and children and houses in the process of conversion because they won't want anything to do with us anymore. That conversion calls everyone to lose everything. So if you want to share the gospel with people who will lose family and homes, the gospel must come with a house key. Here's, here it is. This hundredfold blessing promised here in these verses is not going to fall from the sky. It's going to come from the church. It's going to come from the people of God acting like the family of God. God intends this blessing to come from you and me. And real Christian hospitality that creates real Christian community expresses authentic Christianity in deep and abiding ways to a world that thinks we are hypocrites. She also writes that chronic loneliness should never be the norm in the church. I think we've got work to do. So this leads us to point number three, hospitality and community. Turn to uh, 1 Peter 4, verses 8 to 11. First Peter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 1016. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another, okay, that means fellow believers, without grumbling. <laughs> As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So show hospitality to one another, verse 9. That, that's a command. Can I point out the obvious? To us as Christian Believers, brothers and sisters, showing hospitality to one another is not optional. Does everybody see that? Agree, agree, with, agree with that? Okay. So hospitality is not optional for Christians. So not everybody's going to practice it in the same way, with the same frequency, the same numbers. But we should all be practicing this. So if you don't know where to start, you can certainly start with your community group. You could offer to host or you could invite one person or a few people from your community group over. Or how about on a Sunday, you meet a visitor, invite them out for coffee or over for dinner some night. Or maybe you could participate in the uh, informal Sunday lunch ministry that some folks, you know, live out. I love it. Bill and Sue Hughes do this faithfully. 
Matt and Tracy Ward do this faithfully, and I know there's others as well. Meet a visitor. Hey, what are you guys doing for lunch? You want to come, on up, come out and have lunch with us? So it doesn't have to always be at your home, but it's a hospitable, open, welcoming heart. Okay? So again, this isn't optional. Romans 12, 13. Let's look at that passage here. Because again, we're seeing how hospitality and community among believers is so vital. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So look at that language. It says, seek it. (laughs) So we are commanded by God, Christian brother or sister, to seek to show hospitality. It means we're not just responding. Hey, can I? Sure. But to actually seek it, be proactive, be intentional, to actually plan for it, to work it in, to prioritize it. Listen, though, if this is hard, if this is intimidating, know that this is a reflex of God's grace to us. And if it's a command from God, you can bank on the fact that he will give grace for you to obey the command. That's the kind of God he is, gracious. So we can have all kinds of excuses. You know, I'm too busy. Um, I'm just afraid for a bunch of different reasons. Maybe my home isn't conducive. But oftentimes, I think we we might kind of hit a different obstacle each week. I think selfishness is oftentimes at the heart of this. I mean, I don't know about you, but you get home, you just want to chill out, don't you? Or you want to be able to do what you want to do. You don't want to be bothered. You don't want to work further. It's a hassle. Well, let's just stop and think about that, okay? There is something in us that doesn't want want to love people. (laughs) Probably something to evaluate and push back on and ask for grace to be able to love and welcome and be hospitable. So this is possible. I'm an introvert, and I'm excited about this for this summer, okay? This is possible. I can't wait for the opportunity that the summer holds. So I just, just know this, if you are an introvert, if you're shy and whatever else, I remember when we were searching for an assist, assistant pastor, and Vicki, you do that personality test, and, you know, she's, she's giving me the results because, you know, um, oh, I can't go down this road. Okay, so anyway, the results. So your highest value is privacy. I'm like, what? Great. That's where I want to go home and hide in the bathroom for a few minutes, you know, before I talk to my kids. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) privacy. I'm an introvert, high value privacy. I'm excited. Not because of anything in me, but because, man, God's grace is great. And I'm excited about growing in this this summer. So I hope that's just a little word to you privacy introvert types um, for whom this is very much outside your comfort zone. So, listen, we've got to push back on the selfishness, put it to death. We want ministry in a box with boundaries, controllable, controlled. Sorry, love is messy. Pulls us out of our comfort zone. Pushes us beyond where we wanted to go. But guess what? Jesus is there. (laughs) He's leading us. He's with us. It's worth it. So the hospitality of God leads to our hospitality toward brothers and sisters, building Christian community. But it also leads us out to our unbelieving neighbors in our community as well, our neighborhoods. So point number four, hospitality and mission. Look back at Romans 12, 13, because this actually covers both hospitality with Christians and hospitality with people that don't know Jesus yet. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You know what the Greek word for hospitality is? It's philizania. Does that mean anything to you? No. But philos, love, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? You know what xenophobia is, don't you? Okay? So do not neglect to show stranger love to strangers. The gospel's not compatible with xenophobia. Gospel hospitality 
is a way that we don't conform to the world, the selfishness of this world. I mean, there's just so much individualism and antisociality, if that's even a word. If not, I just coined it. Um, introversion, hyper-privacy. People just hit the button, door goes up, in, down. You never see them again until they put their garbage cans out. Suspicion, fear, selfishness, it's prevalent all around us. So gospel hospitality is an opportunity to shine the light of Christ, the love of Christ, the welcome of Christ, the kindness of Christ into the darkness that's around us. So just practically, if you're intimidated about having your actual neighbors over, like you start praying for the neighbors on your list, if you're intimidated about having them over, guess what? You can practice on us, right? So just do a little practice with your brothers and sisters, like if you burn the potatoes or whatever, it doesn't matter because we love you. You know, we're family. And then maybe you can even have one of your community group families there when you invite some neighbors over. And they can even see how you love each other. You know, John 13, you know we're Christians by our love. So, Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's both and. Hospitality breeds community and hospitality is the love of God on mission into our neighborhood. So I love this statement by, again, Rosaria Butterfield. Nourishing the family of God and compelling those outside of God's favor to come to your table are the twin heartbeats of hospitality. Isn't that great? So, did you notice something on the outline? Three words are bold-faced and underlined. Help me here. Gospel, community, mission. Hey, have you heard those before? Those are our values. That's what we're all about. Gospel, front and center. It's what drives everything creates community, leads to mission. So nothing brings these together like gospel hospitality, right? Our hospitable God, by his grace, he empowers us, he prods us even to be hospitable, to build loving community in the church among believers, and to seek to welcome in the outsiders to experience the welcome of God. So just a little bit of vision like dreaming here. When you were growing up, was there like a go-to family in the neighborhood? Anybody? Did that happen on your block? Okay. Was that your house by any chance, any of you? Maybe it was. What if in Wilmington, the family of God was the go-to family in the neighborhood? Wherever the family of God is present, those houses, those are like the go-to houses in the neighborhood. What if that happened? Anybody want that to happen in Wilmington? What, what, would, what would happen if that happened? Like, how cool would that be? So you know this little chart, right? Eight. Bethel's made up of about 100 family units. A little bit more, but 100 family units. It could be if you're a single person. It could be if you have seven kids. One unit. Okay, so 100. What's eight times 100? 800, not people, 800 households. That start, starts to sound a little bit like city changing, community changing, doesn't it? Just from our little church, you know, gathering weekly on Wilson Road. So no wonder this other book that we'll recommend, and we have copies at the uh, welcome desk if you want to get one, the simplest, this book is called The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life by Willis and Clements. Really good book, super practical. Um, stuff like this, admit your weaknesses, uh, your weak excuses, sorry. What if they don't like me? But my house is a wreck. I don't like to entertain, but I'll have to cook. But we have kids, but my home is small. Like, really practical stuff. Here's a quote. They are actually quoting a guy named Sky Jathani. We've fallen into the conventional thinking that a big mission demands big tactics, but we forget that in the economy of God's kingdom, big does not beget big. 
It's precisely the opposite. The overwhelming message of Jesus' life and teaching is that small begets big. Consider God's plan to redeem creation. That's big. It's achieved through his incarnation as an impoverished baby. Small. Jesus feeds thought, uh, feeds people on a hillside, thousands, big, with just a few fish and loaves, small. Christ seeks to make disciples of all nations. That's big. He starts with a handful of fishermen, small. Even Goliath, big, is defeated by David with a few stones, small. This pattern is also repeated in Jesus' parables about the nature of the kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So 800 households impacted beginning this summer, although I know it's carrying on for some of you. But if, if we impacted that many households in a significant way, it sounds like, wow, that's big. So let's start small and practical. Last point, moving down the line. Both of these books give a little practical progression here. They use different languages. Language. So this one says, strangers, acquaintances, relationship. That's pretty easy to remember. Strangers, I don't know them. Acquaintances, I met them, I know their name. A relationship, like we're becoming friends. Or, Rosaria Butterfield says, gospel hospitality seeks to make strangers into neighbors and neighbors family of God. Okay? So here's the point. You've got your chart, right? You know the names, or maybe you don't. Maybe you know a little fact, maybe you don't. What if you just tried to move down the line with one of those families this week? One of those households. I don't know their name yet. Lord, would you, would you help me get to know the people next door or two doors down this week? Like maybe as I'm cutting the grass or pulling weeds or taking the garbage out or whatever, you see them. <gasps> and you actually walk over and say, hi. We've lived here five years. I don't even know your name. I'm sorry. I really want to be a better neighbor. I'm Chris. Is that going to be, like, really painful? Probably not. They might try to run back inside, but, you know. So just move down the line. What if, what if we all just move down the line this week? So you're going to actually get one of these as a magnet for your fridge, which maybe you write it all on this one, but the magnet will remind you to pray for those eight houses. And you can be reminded regularly, how can I move down the line? Lord, how can I move down the line this week? Really practically. So radically ordinary hospitality, Rosaria Butterfield, is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. Let's love our literal neighbors this summer and beyond. This is like training wheels this summer, okay? So I hope you're with me. I'm gonna, so I'm just gonna say I'm done. That's my sermon, okay?